0: Amos 5. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only 10 left. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, for he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour and Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court. And despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you corn. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offences and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets, and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice, fellowship, offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Do you bring me sacrifices and offerings for forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves." Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty.
1: Thanks, Rob. There's four more chapters in the book after chapter 5. Just as a very quick survey, chapter 6, there's a real judgment on complacency. And on the pride of Israel. And then in chapter 7, you get some of these word pictures starting to appear. But again, they're all basically about justice. The locusts, the flyer, the plumb line. And in chapter 8, there's a basket of fruit. All sorts of wacky things going on. I encourage you to read it at another point. But it is all about that judgment. Uh, Amos even has a, a bit of a tiff with one of the corrupt priests in Israel. Uh, the priest Amaziah. And, um, and then in chapter 9, as well as some judgment, it ends the book on hope, on restoration, on the remnant returning to Israel and hope being restored to Israel. Uh, And as many of the prophets do, that is the the note that it ends on. Well, the love-hate relationship that our society has with judgment and justice is ironic, I think, to say the least. You know, the loudest voices will scream at you for judging others especially if it's for their lifestyle or their sexuality or, you know, their choices. But then they will turn around and vehemently, you know, judge you for being what they deem is intolerant. And so on the one hand, everybody's seeking justice, especially for those who are seen to be victims of injustice or of bigotry these days. But on the other hand, people hate to hear about the judgment of God who might dare to judge people based on outdated moral principles. Justice and judgment are aggressively demanded, aren't they? And yet aggressively rejected every single day. It's ironic, or another word for it, hypocritical. It's a love-hate relationship. And so when the Bible says anything about judgment or justice, most people, and even Christians to an extent, just want to clap their hands over the ears and shout, la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la, until it just goes away. Because let's not dwell on that stuff. But I think you'll agree that that's a little bit of an immature approach. And it's far better to seek to understand God's judgment and justice before we make any judgment call of our own. And that's really what the word demands. In both of the chapters we read before, it starts with these words, hear this, hear this word, Israel, hear what God has to say. Just listen, understand, consider. Further on in chapter 3, verse 8, and then right back in chapter 1, God is pictured as a lion, a lion who is roaring out his judgment. He's demanding to be heard. His fierce anger reveals this incredible passion for justice and, and his thundering voice cannot or should not be ignored. And so this is the message of Amos. As I mentioned, the third in our series on minor prophets. And Amos, just so you know, was a shepherd. He wasn't born to be a prophet. He was a shepherd, looked after sheep from a place called Tekoa. Uh, when God took him and called him and said, Go to my people in the northern kingdom of Israel and speak to them. And this was about eight centuries before Jesus, uh, at what was a time generally of peace and prosperity in the kingdom. And like we saw with Joel, the book before this, uh, this message is another wake-up call. As is often the case in times of peace and prosperity, there's complacency, there's, there's indulgence. And so Amos is saying, wake up, wake wake up to your fake religion and your, your indulgence and turn instead to true worship and true justice in the land. If we were to visualize this message like a courtroom scene, we might picture God as the presiding judge, Amos as the accusing lawyer, prophet lawyer, and uh, of course, bringing this case against the people. But the accused, who the people is and the case itself and the verdict, they all need a little bit of fleshing out, which is what we're going to do now and uh, consider things in these terms. So firstly, let's think about who the accused are. And in many ways, the accused in that stand are all people, all People, All the nations that surround Israel are mentioned there in chapters 1 and 2 because all of them are guilty. They're guilty of wickedness, of injustice, of rebellion from God. And it straightaway reminds us, no matter who the people are, that the true nature of justice and of what's right and wrong is how we stand before God. And if Christianity is new to you today or recently, let me present this case to you. Justice is not measured by our own shifting opinions or standards or, or even our own laws. Justice is measured by a creator God who made us to be like him and to love like him and it's his standard and morality that we reject. It's, his, it's him that we All rebel from. So all people are guilty. All people, all the nations, present and past. As Psalm 14 says, there is no one who does good. Not even one. Not one person. And Paul adds, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, of course, the standard of God, the morality of God. All cannot measure up to Him. But if you were to look at these nations on a map, and I apologize, I haven't got one for the screen, you would sort of see as you work through the nations in chapters 1 and 2, that it kind of spirals in as it goes to the closer ones and then ultimately lands on Israel. And it's a bit like a tightening noose. The climax of judgment is saved, it's reserved for God's own people. See, Israel were always so concerned with God's judgment on others. Get them, God. You know, they're our enemies. They've, they've been doing this to us. Can you please get them? They're bullies. Get them. But then they so often neglected their own problems, their own sin and issues. A bit like an older sibling taking great joy in the discipline of a little brother or sister. They stand behind the parent with a smug look on their face. Nee, nee, nee only to find that wrathful parent rounding on them and the the discipline increasing significantly because they should know better, shouldn't they? You should know better. You're the older one. And this is the attitude that God has to Israel as they smugly listen to this judgment that's dealt onto these other nations, which, by the way, takes up uh, like one whole chapter of Amos on these other nations, and then the rest of the book is all for Israel. And God is saying to them, you should know better. I expected more from you. Why? Because not only was he their creator God, he's their redeemer. He's their friend. That's what chapters 2 and 3 highlight. We read it before. He's saying, I chose you, Israel. I chose you. I brought you up out of Egypt. We agreed to walk together, you and I. To have a relationship. I was to be your God and you were to be my people. And so your sin, it pains me all the more. My disappointment in you is the greatest. Israel had such a wonderful privilege. You know, they had a relationship with the God who made them, they had a law that was literally written by the finger of God, not by man's best efforts, by God Himself. They had had a land flowing with milk and honey. They had a king and a kingdom. They had everything. And with all that privilege came a responsibility to be a light and a beacon to the nations around them. But instead, they lived exactly like those nations. And then, ironically, demanded judgment on those nations. God punish them, punish them, even though we live exactly like them. And so their guilt was higher. And it goes the same for Christians today. We're so privileged to know God and to know the way of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus. But it comes with a responsibility to live as a light and a beacon to the world around us. And yet, because of our sin, what do we do? We default to living just like them and, ironically, judging them at the same time. I mean, what hypocrites we are. We constantly focus on the speck in the eyes of others, often of people who don't know any better. And we forget about the big fat log in our own eyes. We who know better. And often it's as simple as judging the choices and the opinions of others, maybe their politics, maybe their sexuality, maybe their morality, but then we do nothing to help them see it a different way. Isn't that right? To see it God's way. And so we all stand in the guilty seat. But some are more guilty than others, usually the ones who perhaps don't see their guilt at all. And so this responsibility that we have, we're called to, to help others, it brings us to the case that's against us, which is basically the neglect of justice. It's like the irony of judging the world and yet acting exactly like them. So it is when we judge others and yet fail to do justice for those in need. In chapter 5, Amos reminds Israel the need to seek God a couple of times. Seek God and also to seek good. And it's another way of, uh, I guess, pointing to Jesus' summary of the law, which is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But Israel was ignoring both of these things. Instead of seeking God, they were, they were going through the motions. Instead of worship, it was just religion, it was rituals, it was ceremony, it was tradition. Why? Because it felt good and because they could tick that box and then go and live however they pleased. And instead of seeking good for others, that is mercy and justice and compassion, they sought to indulge themselves and get fat off the exploitation of the poor. I think one of the most hard-hitting verses in this book is Amos chapter 4, verse 1, and he calls the women of the the nation fat, hedonist cows, basically. It's hard-hitting, rebuking their selfish neglect. Why? Because it's a disgrace. It is an absolute disgrace. It's the worst hypocrisy when people go through the religious motions and yet fail to actually love God and love others. That's the depravity of people defined, And again, the guilt rests on all of us. And so we all need to to be able to listen to this. And yes, we squirm, but we've got to be able to hear it. We've got to be able to listen to these words from chapter 5 again. I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies. They're a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. And God's saying that should be your song. The rolling on of justice and righteousness in a world of injustice. Can you imagine if we were here singing songs One Sunday, like we've just been doing. And then this booming voice just cuts through it all. Everything just stops. And the voice basically says, shut up. Just shut up. It's not genuine. I don't want to hear it. It's all well and good that you come and you say those things from your mouth. But what's your heart focused on right now? And what have your hands been doing this past week to match your religion? And why is your mouth praising me today and then going off and gossiping and slandering and telling sick jokes tomorrow? Why? I'm not saying that here at Willow our worship isn't genuine. Of course not. But we all need to hear these words and search our hearts, don't we? That's the point of God's word, to to cut right down deep, to convict us. Are we here for religious box ticking? Or are we here to love God and to love others? Sometimes it seems like no matter how much we talk about it and we talk about the culture we want, that, that it's so hard for us to come and, and be a church together, not for ourselves and what we can get out of it, but for others. Every Sunday. How are we coming for that purpose? Not, you know, this is for me. And that doesn't even begin on the poor and the needy, the marginalized, the struggling, the spiritually dying who are all around us. Are we equally guilty like Israel of seeking wealth and comfort over the simple needs of others? That's what this uh, series on generosity has has been all about. And... uh, I think today, which is only one week after we finish that series, is a good day to remember that the challenge, that the call to radical generosity doesn't end because we finish a series, that it continues on, it's lifelong, it's challenging every day, every week for us to ask, how can I be generous today or this week? How can I sacrifice today or this week? God calls us to seek him and to seek good. To love God and love others, not to tick the box on religion and tradition. Not to indulge in wealth and comfort, clapping our hands over our ears and pretending there's no struggles out there. So let's seek forgiveness for that hypocrisy we so easily embrace. So that's the accused and the accusation in the scene. What about the verdict? What is the nature of God's judgment? And We considered it five months ago when we looked at the book of Joel, uh, who speaks a lot about the day of the Lord, uh, or the day of judgment, the day of reckoning. And Amos goes there too, especially in the second half of chapter 5. And here he's warning and he's saying to Israel, don't look forward to that day. Don't be excited about that day because your neighbouring nations are going to be judged and you'll be like, yeah, they were always going to get it. Because it's going to be just as bad for you. That's what he says. And in part, that's because fake religion and, and selfish neglect is always going to come and naturally bite you in the backside. Yes, God judges us as an external being according to his justice and righteousness, which we reject. But we also suffer the natural consequences of living according to the sin within, to living selfishly. That's why we get that little picture in chapter 5 in verse 19 about the lion and the bear and the snake. You run from the lion, the bear, and then the snake bites you. Because even though Israel had escaped many external threats, and often God had delivered them from these external threats, their demise actually came from within. Yes, it was a, a huge empire that marched in and conquered them and dragged them off to foreign lands, but their demise came from within. Right when they felt most secure, they were actually in the greatest danger. They thought they were sheltered from this coming day of the Lord, but actually they were fully exposed. Yes, God's going to judge the surrounding nations, Israel, but you have the same selfish greed and phony religion and it will bite you from behind. What about us? Do we ever feel secure in our religious tradition? You know, do these cozy walls on a Sunday make us sort of feel holy and righteous? Because they're not a refuge. Might keep the cold out a little bit, but they are not a refuge from God's judgment. And what about wealth? Do we ever feel secure because we have the suburban package house, car, whatever else? Does that make us feel blessed? Because again, that's not a refuge. God is a refuge, not not these other things. And we've talked a lot about how greed can destroy us from within. It's like a poisonous snake. It's right there and sinks its teeth in, just as religious tradition. And so in chapter 4, verse 12 of Amos, God uses this line, prepare to meet your God. It's very um, confronting, isn't it? People sometimes say, prepare to meet your maker. Prepare to meet your God. And really, this is what the day of the Lord, or the day of judgment, is about. Meeting God face to face and being held to account. And there's two factors that determine how you might meet with someone if you've arranged a meeting. The first is who they are. You know, if they're a friend, it's pretty cruisy, isn't it? You go and you catch up. It's easy. You don't have to really prepare much. You just... Have a coffee, whatever you might be doing. If it's a business partner, maybe it's got a little f- more formality. You know, there's an agenda, you've got to get things done. Yeah, you know, a certain degree of respect has to come into it. If it's the prime minister, well, then it's even more formal. You know, you're going as a citizen to a leader, you've got to be fully respectful and prepare and make sure that you're doing that well. But the other factor then is the reason for meeting someone. If you go to meet a friend, it could be the simplest, easiest thing in the world, you know, just catching up, how how's life going? But if you're meeting them because you've somehow betrayed them, well then it's the hardest thing, isn't it? You dread that meeting. Changes the preparation completely. It's hard, it's scary. So how is it with God? Well it's actually all of this put together. We meet him as both the king of the universe and as a close friend who walks with us. But in both roles, we meet him because we've betrayed him. It's the hardest of meetings. It's the most terrible that day. We meet our holy, righteous judge, As traitors and criminals. But we have a defender, don't we? There's another person in that courtroom, another prophet lawyer. And instead of accusing us, he defends. He's not one to prove our innocence because, well, we aren't innocent. But he does take our place. Suffers our judgment. Wears our guilt. Gives up his own innocence, his own freedom in order to save us from the punishment we deserve. Yes, the privilege and responsibility of knowing God increases our guilt a lot. Maybe even a hundredfold if I was to just throw a number at it. But the privilege of knowing Jesus and the gospel and knowing Him and having a relationship with Him that increases our innocence infinitely. Infinitely. And so if you are a Christian, Yes, you need to heed the warnings of judgment as people who know better. That is what the Old Testament, a lot of the time, is there for. But you also need to live in the joy of knowing you're saved by Jesus. Because he took the full brunt of God's judgment for us. That's the good news of grace. It's not that we then have to, or that we can ignore judgment and justice and all the hard stuff in the Old Testament, the prophets. It's that we feel the heavy weight of it, but then it's lifted from us. And that's all the more joyful, all the more to celebrate for what Christ has done. And if you're not a Christian here today, please take note of this most important character in the courtroom. A defender unlike any other. Who takes the death penalty for us and grants us his innocence. I mean, how can we possibly be offended by the judgment of God when instead of dumping it on us, he blasts it against his son? I mean, that concept may offend us, sure, but we can't be personally offended. because God shows his grace. And so we don't have to prepare to meet God as a traitorous friend or subject or an enemy, like, for example, Judas. Because of Jesus, we can meet him as one in excellent standing. We can meet him with confidence and hope in the life that he offers to innocent and righteous people. The hope that Amos shares in the second half of chapter 9, end of the book. It's the hope of a remnant returning to Israel after exile. I'd love to dive into that more, but that's for another time. But ultimately, that hope points to the fulfillment and the return of Jesus Christ. To the promise of spiritual prosperity beyond Judgment Day. Beyond that Harsh day where all sin is accounted for. And yet beyond that gracious day where we can be claimed innocent. Wine dripping from the mountains. Trees overflowing with fruit. Eden restored and redeemed. That's the picture you get there. That's the gift that Jesus gives. An eternity of that goodness. That's what God offers thanks to Christ's work on the cross. And that's the good that we are to seek for others as we seek God and his justice today. Shall we pray? Father God, we confess to you this morning that we are hypocrites. That it's built into us to desire justice. And while we always want it for others, we run from it ourselves. Or while we seek it in some ways, we ignore it in others. Lord, we are hypocrites, those of us who know you because we judge the world around us and yet so often live exactly like them. And because we judge the world around us but we never seek or often we don't help. And so Lord, we want to pray that you forgive us through Jesus who defends, through Jesus who steps into our place and takes our punishment. Through him who defends our cause. And who grants his innocence. We pray that you will forgive us. And redeem us and transform us. And Lord that you will put in us his desire for justice. So that we might seek good for the world around us. Lord, may we seek you in our worship, knowing always that it is a relationship, not religion. And may we seek good for each other and for the people in our lives, especially those who don't know you, that they might know the good of Christ and the gospel. And we pray that your justice will abound in this world through your church, through us, and through your will and your Holy Spirit. We ask it
0: in the name of Jesus. Amen.